Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and sometimes people who just have fascinating stories. Today, our guest, Judge Gail Williams Byers, warns us of the dangers of masking where people with commercial driver's licenses get lenient treatments in our nation's courts to hide their many traffic offenses. This leads to too many unsafe truck drivers and others still being able to drive on our highways, making them extremely dangerous. Judge, we want to start looking at the whole idea of truckers and licensing of truckers and the safety surrounding that. Uh, the commercial driver's license, commonly referred to as a CDL, uh, has some uh, federal laws that, that cover it. But I want to start off with a term that you educated me about, and I want you to ed educate our audience about, called masking. What is masking as it relates to truck drivers' licensure? Well, I want to say, Tom, I think this is a fantastic topic for us to discuss because it affects so many people, um, not just truckers, but it actually affects almost anyone you can imagine who rides on a road or highway. And as it relates to masking, it's a really specific term that is fairly reserved for CDL holders when it relates to any kind of um, driving offense or offense that um, they've committed while holding a CDL license. So essentially masking is a very common practice that's seen in courts. You might, um, if you've ever been to traffic court, even without a CDL, and you've seen someone come in and they want to engage in plea bargaining to kind of reduce their exposure to, to more penalties, I like to say. So usually it's the, I don't want the points argument. Masking relates to that plea bargaining that struck between a commercial driver's license holder or CDO holder um, who actually might be in some danger of either accruing points or violations on their record. Um, and because of that may face automatic suspension of their license or their driving privileges. And so when that plea bargaining or that reduction or that change in the charge 
happens um, for that driver, it may seem like it's a really good deal for the driver because they don't have to accept the points and all of the other penalties that come along with it. But the problem with that is that it leaves on the road someone driving, you know, potentially some of the largest vehicles we see on our roads and highways. It leaves an unsafe driver to share the roads with the rest of the driving public who's also unsuspecting. So it actually makes the roads and highways less safe and it increases the likelihood of harm, not just to that CDL holder, but to the person that's just riding next to them or behind them or even in front of them on a road or highway. And so when an offense is masked, it's because it's related to that reduction or that changing in a charge, even if it's a speeding charge or some minor offense, changing that charge or even letting them participate in a diversion program or you know a, a traffic um, rehabilitation program. Those things all create masking offenses and they mask or cover up the true record or history of that driver and sometimes to the detriment of the rest of the public. You wrote an article for the American Bar Association uh, newsletter called Highway to Justice and and you talked about this, this and you gave a specific example of an accident in June of 2018 on Interstate 84 in Idaho. Could could you uh, talk about that with us? Yes. Um, and, and again, 2018 doesn't seem so long ago, but it really is just a few short years ago. And in that situation, that collision was um, so unfortunate because of the, the number of lost lives. And so it was June of 2018, and there was a truck driver, um, a CDL holder, who was driving on Route 84 in Idaho. And that truck driver actually plowed into a Jeep Wrangler that had been stopped in traffic on that highway. Now, that impact resulted in the death of the truck driver, the CDL holder, as well as three Idaho airmen who were in that Jeep Wrangler just stopped on the highway. Um, after some investigating of the situation, it was learned that the truck driver had actually been convicted of more than 20 driving-related violations across four states and had additional offenses in other states. And because a lot of these offenses had been um, changed or amended or um, he had been permitted to merely pay fines and wasn't held accountable in the manner that um, he should have been, quite frankly, that meant that his driving history, this record actually went undetected for a long time. And had it been detected and had it been reported and had his prior convictions not been masked, with these reduced charges or these changes um, in pleas, then this driver actually would not have had a, any legal authority to be on the roads or highways. He would have had no license. Um, every other state that he was in would have been aware of it. And if he had been driving without driving privileges, he could have perhaps been more easily identified and his behavior thwarted. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about the commercial driver's license and the special requirements that go with that. Obviously, it's required uh, for uh, long-haul truckers and, and others, but it has certain regulations about suspensions related to traffic traffic offenses, not only while the person is operating as a commercial driver, but as they're operating their private vehicles. Is that a correct statement? You are absolutely correct. And so uh, what I I often find um, a little interesting is, um, especially so that everybody knows, the thing of it is, is when you are given a commercial driver's license now, you are given that license only after you have gone through quite a bit of training. So none of this is a secret to the CDL holder. Now, it could possibly be a secret to the rest of the traveling public. And, you know, even to some degree, although we're working extremely hard to educate judges, you'd be surprised at the number of judges who aren't aware of the very specific rules that relate to CDL holders that don't relate to every other perhaps garden variety driver. So if you can think of it this way, you know, it's the idea of one driver, one license. When we go to the license bureau and we are renewing our license, we don't get a license for when we're driving our personal vehicles versus when we want to, you know, maybe take our parents' vehicle in for oil change. It's one driver, one license. The same holds true for CDL holders. They are a single driver and they obtain a single license with what's called an endorsement on that license. And that endorsement um, in the form of letters, so A, B, C, those endorsements actually tell the driver what types of um, large vehicles or specialized vehicles they are authorized to actually handle or driver that they demonstrated the skill set to drive. And so the reason why these rules are so strict for CDL holders is because of their ability to drive, handle, share the roads with you and I, while often driving, again, some of the largest and frequently um, most dangerous vehicles. We're talking about vehicles that may carry hazardous materials, gasoline, not just goods and products, but you know anything. And these are, again, often large vehicles. And so the rules are that for a CDL holder, it doesn't matter if you're driving you know, the family Mazda or if you're driving the large Volvo box truck or the 18-wheeler, the rules are the same. And so even if a CDL holder commits an infraction in their personal vehicle, which oftentimes is the argument, right? You know, oh, I was just driving my kids to school or we were on vacation or I wasn't driving my professional vehicle. First of all, the rule is one license, one driver, and that you're governed by the same rules always no matter what vehicle you are driving. And that actually works to the benefit of all of the driving public because that means that CDL holders that are held to this higher standard are will likely be, or we want them to be, just as if not more careful in their personal vehicles when they're often carrying precious cargo in the form of beloved loved ones or family members as they are when they are driving professional vehicles. And so the ability to escape 
Um, their responsibility simply because they're not driving a professional vehicle does not exist for them. The rules are the same no matter what kind of vehicle you're driving. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter what vehicle you're driving or whether it's a state traffic law or a local traffic law, whether it's in your home state or some other state if you're visiting, the rules are the same no matter where you go. And that works to the benefit of everyone in the driving public. Now, private individuals who do this, they, they we get a regular driver's license. And I think most people are familiar in all the states around the country that if you commit certain infractions, you get points against your license. And if you accumulate a certain number of points, and that changes state to state, certain number of points within a designated period of time, you can lose your license. Also, if you accumulate points, uh, your automobile insurance may be, uh, the rates may be raised on you as as an unsafe driver. So oftentimes, people that say uh, have very minor traffic violations will come into court and they'll talk with the prosecutor and say a speeding of over 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. That may be reduced down to a fictional no headlights charge. So no points will be assessed against that individual's license. Now, if you're a private individual, one can debate the perhaps ethics of that or the social morality of that, but we know that happens all the time in almost every court across the country that handles traffic. Absolutely. Any town, USA. And if that happens, Judge, nothing's wrong with that legally. Correct. I mean, that that can happen and it happens routinely. You are absolutely right. It can happen and it does happen with a high level of regularity. And just as you said, in just about every court, um, every traffic court in the U.S., it is not uncommon to create those what you call legal fictions um, of changing or reducing charges for a private citizen driver who does not have a specialized license or an endorsement. Happens all the time. And then on some more serious charges, uh, there's the other option, and that if somebody comes in, say, with a driving while under suspension, and they don't have a significant or serious driving record, that person can go into a diversion program in many courts across the country, which means that they plead guilty, but that guilty pleas put on hold. They're required to go to some classes, some schooling, sometimes do some community service, various things, and that differs from court to court. But if they accomplish all of those things, at the end of it, that initial case is dismissed so that the person does not have that violation on their driving record. Those diversion programs 
uh, I would say, Judge, not only exist, but they're increasing in popularity. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. And I would also go as far as to say that in many jurisdictions, they are encouraged um, for a number of reasons. Um, It can be because there are just high volumes of traffic cases coming through the court. And so it's used as a mechanism, meaning the diversion programs are used as a mechanism to move cases along, especially where the idea is that the person doesn't present a huge risk to society and that the safety of society is not um, any more challenged or at risk by allowing this person essentially a second chance. And for some, maybe it's a second or a third chance. Um, It's also um, encouraged because it's seen as an opportunity to provide those second chances and to avoid what can often be seen as some of the more stricter and even draconian penalties for minor traffic offenses. It's not uncommon to take into consideration the fact that, you know, someone who comes in with a minor traffic offense may not have the ability to renew their license and may need their license to maintain employment or caregiving or to go to school. And providing them this opportunity helps to ensure the stability of their life and their livelihood, but also the stability of of a community, right? If you have individuals who aren't working and they can't maintain employment, that absolutely affects the stability of a community. So allowing participation in these diversion programs does permit a a responsible license holder who may be in court for an infraction, kind of a second chance to hit the reset button and to get their, their lives together and to get their cases together while maintaining employment and every other responsibility in life. So these are not, this is not terribly uncommon. And as you said, not only is it Um, growing and increasing in popularity. In some areas, it's actually being encouraged as a tool to help individuals stay employable and stay connected to um, their communities and maintain their responsibilities. Now, let's take this one step further. And again, uh, remind our audience, we're talking about the average person with just a regular driver's license. Sometimes when people get picked up for driving while under the influence and they test pretty low on all of the standards for intoxication, but for some reason the prosecution doesn't want to reduce it down to a driving, uh, reckless driving kind of charge, it instead Many courts have regular what they call DUI courts or driving while under the influence courts, where again, a person pleads guilty, that guilty pleas put on hold. They do a even longer or more detailed series of classes and treatments and sometimes in-house uh, three-day programs. Uh, that's up to the court to decide. But at the end of that, that charge is also dismissed. So it's it's all of this diversion is ratcheting up even to our more serious charges in traffic court. You are absolutely correct. And what you have just described in the with the DUI court is what's 
frequently referred to as a specialized docket or a problem-solving court. So DUI is seen as a specific problem or issue that the court can place some very or highly specialized attention to to help address. And again, this is, as you said, for kind of the regular garden variety driver who now may be appearing in traffic court because they are facing an even more serious offense. And as you said, under the corners or the requirements of a DUI court um, program participation, it works much the same as how you've described. Now, you know, a person may be required to complete any number of things to satisfy the court's belief that they will be rehabilitated at the conclusion of their case. And it's almost akin to having being engaged in very intensive probation with the judge being the probation officer in this sense, because in these specialized courts and with specialized dockets, like you've explained and described, judges take a very, very involved role in making sure that those participating are really following through and in many times instances getting the services they need. Similar to what you described, it can be intensive services like treatment three times a week or multiple times a week. It could involve um, beginning with a drug and alcohol assessment. And so you assess to determine the needs of the person that's going to be in the program and then what kind of services or what kind of treatment needs to be in place in order for them to achieve the goal. Because the goal is never to set them up for failure. The reason why the courts are created or these dockets are created is so to as to help the person that's before the court to not reoffend, to deal with the issue that brought them there. And I often find that there are what are called root cause issues, right? So if someone's in court and they you know, have a minor DUI or driving under the influence offense that makes them eligible for a specialized docket. You may also find that in a period of time in their life when they began drinking or using, um, you know, legal substances more heavily that caused them to be under the influence, you might find that they experienced a great loss in their life. So maybe there's some something there where they need counseling of some nature, or they need some other kind of services uh, that you may not have otherwise learned about if you were only interested in just getting the case over and done with. And so the specialized dockets really do allow judges and it allows the court staff to really help the litigant, help them define what the real issue and problem is, and to really work hard to turn the behavior around so that they are less likely to reoffend and that they experience long-term sobriety given the circumstances that caused them to be in front of the judge. And as you have described that, uh, I still sit occasionally as an acting judge or a visiting gut judge and often uh, come in contact with people in specialized courts. And the role of the judge, it, as you said, is really integral in that development. It's not like the person pleads guilty and then comes back to the court in six months or a year. 
you know, the court has the person come in sometimes weekly, uh, sometimes every couple of weeks, and you get an update on how the person's doing, or you give the person encouragement, or, you know, you say, look, you're not doing so well. You, you bomb out of this program. <laughs> Remember, I've got that guilty plea, and you're going to jail. But the judge is very involved in that process. Truer words never spoken. You are so right. The programs do not work without intense judicial involvement and investment. All right. So we've talked about that now as the individual license, but let's now switch to the CDL because oftentimes people will come into court, the Judges are unaware of the concept of masking, uh, whether they should be or not. It's another point we might get to, but but they're unaware. So the person comes in and says, look, I've got a CDL license. I am the sole breadwinner of my family. If I get this minor speeding ticket for going 10 miles over the speed limit, um, I, uh, that's going to harm my ability to make a living with my CDL license. So, Judge, you know, can you allow me to talk to the prosecutor? Yes. Prosecutor says, okay, you don't have a bad record, or I don't know of your record in other states. You know, this is done on the fly. It's done quickly. The prosecutor says, okay, we're going to go to a, a no headlights charge or something minor, uh, no, no taillight or something. You know, so the, that happens. The judge goes along with it, and the case is over. That CL, CDL driver does not have now any moving violation on his or her record. You're telling me and telling our audience that that process, which happens across the country, is illegal. Indeed, it is. And for as troubling as it may seem, and quite frankly, you know, the impact is real to the driver. The fact of the matter is that the federal law does not per permit CDL holders to engage in plea bargaining for just providing what I like to call a naked benefit to the driver. And so not only does federal law prohibit it, each state in the U.S. has adopted either all or almost all of the federal statutes into its own state statutes. And even for those states that um, have not perfectly adopted the federal statutes, um, it is very clear and you can see from the case law where they're um, appellate courts and Supreme Courts have clearly relied upon the federal statute to um, interpret um, consistently along the same lines of what's the intent of the federal law. They've interpreted it consistently when these cases come in front of them on appeal. And so if we took this same hypothetical that you outlined and the CDO driver comes into court and decides that, you know, they they don't want the points on their license because they know or they're aware. And I go back to this because we said this just a little while ago. CDL holders are not licensed without information and without training. So 
quite frankly, when they come into your court or when they, you know, want to insist that they're going to be harmed um, almost without repair, the fact of the matter is, is that they know that they're held to this higher standard and they know it better than anyone else. And they know this even before they're given the license. And they also know that they are required to govern themselves accordingly. Now, is anyone perfect? Absolutely not. And, um, you know, in their lifetime of having a commercial driver will just as with someone with a regular driver's license. Yeah. Will they likely commit some kind of offense while driving? Absolutely. The difference, however, is how they are held accountable. I do want to say, though, it doesn't mean that even in your hypothetical, if you're a CDL holder, that you can't talk to the prosecutor at all. And there's no way at all for you to even engage in any plea bargaining or any negotiations, because here's what can happen. And here's what does happen is that if there is a factual basis for the change in the charge, if there's probable cause or there's a reason to believe that the charges are inappropriate or that they were wrong. Let's say in the instance or the example that you gave, the you know, CDL holder is driving and they're allegedly driving at a rate of 10 miles or 20 miles over the limit, but the officer's device was never calibrated. And so it's been operating ineffectively for a long time. The prosecution may very well have a problem with proving their case anyway. It may be that the driver's charge is inappropriate. And in it, and under those circumstances, it is absolutely not only correct, but the ethical thing to do is to dismiss the charge or to change the charge if the prosecutor knows that they cannot satisfy their burden of proof um, based on the charges that they have now brought to the court for this defendant or this driver. That is the right thing to do. So there may be instances. And in fact, there are many instances when it is absolutely appropriate for a CDO holder or their attorney to talk to the prosecutor just about whether or not the charges are correct. And if there is a real good faith basis, in fact, that allows them to go forward with that charge because it's entirely possible and it happens with some level of regularity that it is not and that it, they do not and that they must dismiss the charge. That is fair. So so a dismissal based upon the facts of an individual case is perfectly legal and perfectly appropriate. Yes. A reduction of a charge to a fictional charge just for the convenience of the driver who's holding a CDL license is illegal. Precisely. Precisely. That is exactly um, the case. And so, again, some of those conversations are important. I will tell you also, if a CDL driver has been convicted of an offense, but there is a record retention statute or policy that only requires the court to hold on to that information for a specific period of time, and if the court has essentially expunge the record because it has satisfied the retention policy, that is not illegal because there's been compliance with the law in retaining that record. And so that, yes, may be to the benefit of the CDL holder who doesn't have to do anything under those circumstances, but wait that period of time. 
But again, if the records are expunged or the records are removed because they've satisfied the limit of time that they're supposed to have those records, then that also is appropriate. So, so let me paint a picture here. Uh, we as regular citizen drivers out on the interstates and the highways and byways of this country presume that truck drivers, uh, semi-truck drivers and others, are held to a higher standard. And many people think, well, they're safer drivers because of that. We can rely on truck drivers to be safer drivers. What you're telling me is because of this masking, we're out there and our thoughts that these people may inherently be safe drivers could be delusional because of this idea of masking and how prevalent it is across the country. It is absolutely flawed thinking to believe that they are necessarily more safe drivers because of the prevalence of masking. You are absolutely correct. And if I can, just for a second, um, just kind of frame this from a historical perspective. And, and I say historical because it goes back to 1986, um, which doesn't seem that long ago to me, but for some, it may seem like eons ago. But if what happened in 1986 is Congress became aware that there were these increases in the number of large truck crashes on America's roads and highways. And if we've seen nothing these last few you know, years or months, we know that Congress holds hearings and they did in this instance. And when they held hearings in 1986, Congress actually came away with some fairly significant findings as a result of exploring this issue of these increased large truck crashes on America's roads and highways, many of which resulted in several fatalities. And so, again, they learned that in 1986, there were um, 32 states that had no licensing requirements to issue CDLs. None. Wow. It, it, it wow. was an astounding number of states that you could literally go into your license bureau and you could request a CDL license and you would be given one, no questions asked. Pay your money and get your Correct. license. The remaining 18 states, even though they had requirements, um, you know, very few of them required, 12 of them didn't even require a skills test. So it meant that you could pay a little bit more for your license if you didn't want to take the skills test, but it decreased exponentially the number of, in, of states and individuals who would actually be tested in order to get a CDL license. So again, eight, 1986 doesn't seem that long ago, but I'll tell you, if you can imagine, you know, on balance, how many states actually had any kind of protections in place to make sure that the folks behind some of the largest and most dangerous vehicles on our roads and highways actually knew how to operate them. If you had just enough money, now you could actually go and get a CDL license from just about any state, no questions asked. Well, 
And and let me just jump in here real quick, and I'll let you continue. CDL license, we've been talking about long-haul truckers you know, and, and semi-drivers, but CDL licenses go to limo drivers, go to taxi cab school drivers. School bus drivers. To the school bus drivers, the people who deliver your packages to your front yes. door from your computer uh, commerce. You know, all of those yes. people have CDL The license. FedEx driver. Go ahead. The, the FedEx right. driver. The, and these are the intersection with the everyday, normal, average individual and a CDL holder is probably far more prevalent than most people give it um, or even think about. But you likely engage with or intersect with a CDL holder multiple times in a week, if not in a day. And what was so startling, which gave rise to the federal rules, but what was so startling back in 1986 was because there was no common system in place to track these licensing practices between the states that you know, required testing versus those that didn't versus those that said, oh, if you want to feel free, but if you don't, it's okay. What happened was it, as you could likely imagine, it encouraged essentially non-capable drivers to obtain multiple driving licenses, multiple CDLs without ever being noticed. So that meant you could essentially in 1986, you could collect commercial driver licenses across multiple states like a deck of cards. And if you were more likely than not an abysmal driver because you're learning on the job and you've never been tested, then it also means that when you get pulled over in one state, you could rifle through your deck of driver's licenses, your deck of CDLs, and you can offer to the officer whichever one that perhaps had the least amount of infractions on it because there was also no cross-state communication. So this was essentially the right hand never knowing what the left hand was doing and leaving, again, some of the most dangerous drivers on the road because there was no way to track who gave a license to John Q. Public in what state. And so now John Q. Public has an entire glove box full of commercial driver's licenses issued by multiple states. And the rules sought to cure that by saying, as I said, one license, one driver. And if you move from one state to another, you must surrender or give up your old license, your old CDL, in order to get a new one issued to you in the new state that you moved to. But no more of this, well, I came from Ohio, but I decided to move to Louisiana. I suppose I'll keep both my Ohio CDL and I'll get myself a Louisiana CDL because I've got a few infractions on that Ohio one and I don't want anyone to know. So if I get pulled over, I'll just show them the Louisiana license. No more of that. And so that's one of the things that the law sought to cure in addition to standardizing the penalties for some of the same serious infractions. So no more worrying about, well, will the CDL holder that's convicted of drunk driving in Wyoming be treated the same way if they were in Florida or Pennsylvania or Maine or New Hampshire? Now, all of that became standardized after the hearings in 1986 and and you know, creating what's called the Commercial Motor Vehicle Safety Act 
1986 that really sought to respond to some of the more serious concerns that were raised out of those hearings. Okay, but let's take it from Congress. Congress passed this act in 1986. Uh, States followed, and and some of them uh, passed legislation that was similar or identical uh, to to the federal legislation. But let's move forward to 2023. We've got judges across the country not knowing about this and going forward with this masking process that endangers the public. How can that happen? You are absolutely correct. And so just because Congress passes a law doesn't mean that everyone becomes educated or aware en masse. And so the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration um, has taken on the banner and even um, the, the lead in helping to partner with places like the National Judicial College and allowing folks like me and others to teach judges all over the country about masking, because you're absolutely right. The practice of masking actually gives this false sense of security to every person riding on a road and highway that the truck driver or the school bus driver or the package delivery guy that's driving next to them is one of the safest drivers on the road. And in fact, the complete opposite could likely be true. And so it's really important that the decision makers in these cases, the guardrails, if you will, the judges are really aware of not only the law and the rules, but their responsibility to help keep roads and highways safe and not just give the trucker a break, right? Because, hey, they may risk having a suspended license or not be able to make a living because they are, they've shown up in court and now they've got this infraction. Um, judges have to be made aware that this isn't something that's just blanketly available to truck drivers. Now, there could be potentially, and I don't know how often this is applied, but there could be federal penalties to states or localities, correct, that are not following this law, that are allowing this masking en masse? You are absolutely correct. So the first order of business really is to try to educate. And um, what I have found in my experience of educating judges is that they respond remarkably well to education and they moderate, we moderate behavior based on what we learn and what we know. Um, So that's really the first course of action. But you're absolutely right because the Commercial Motor Vehicle Safety Act of 1986 did build in penalties for noncompliance. And the penalties for noncompliance could include 5% or more of a state's federal highway funding being removed from them. So the monies that are often used to repair roads and highways could actually dissipate or go away. And that's directly tied to the actions of the courts and the actions of judges who may permit masking to happen or take place in their courts. In addition, how often does that happen? Well, I will tell you, um, it's something that does happen with a lot less frequency because, again, what we found is that educating judges really does help. The second thing is that um, providing notice of the behavior really does help to put states and courts um, on notice on how they need to change behavior to avoid 
perhaps the harshest of the penalties. And what usually takes place is if there's a notification that masking is taking place in a state, it then triggers what's called an audit. And the audit can be conducted such that it provides more concrete evidence and information and instances of masking in courts across the state. And as a result of the audit, the state is then given a letter that tells them we're notifying you that we've discovered this practice in your state's courts and that the penalties for continuing this practice as opposed to curing it can be particularly harmful to your state. The other thing a state can face in addition to a diminution or loss of federal highway funding is a state could actually lose its ability to issue commercial driver's licenses, which, as we talked about before, for some of them can be pretty lucrative if you think about the number of licenses that's issued and the costs associated with it. Um, If a state loses its ability to issue commercial driver's licenses because of prevalent masking and an inability or refusal to correct the behavior, it really could have a detrimental impact on the state. So there's all kinds of motivations to address it and to work hard to get it right. But it really starts with educating um, judges, but it also includes educating the public. And making sure that the public is aware because the public deserves to know whether or not they're sharing roads and highways with truly safe drivers. Or if they're, as you said, if they're driving under a delusion of safety when in fact it doesn't exist. And the public has the right to hold its public officials in, uh, in many states that includes judges accountable yeah, absolutely. Uh, for for following the law. I'll tell you, the next time I have somebody come in with a speeding ticket that's reduced down to a no headlights, I'm first question out of my mouth is, are you a CDL holder? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and I started doing that as well once I learned because you were absolutely right when it comes to public service accountability. Judges, just like every other public servant, um, should be held accountable for their actions and the work that they do. And once you know, you should do better and you're required to do better. And I think judges really do respond. I'll tell you, my experience has been when um, I've had the opportunity to teach and educate judges, they've responded favorably, even when they didn't have any idea what masking was other than around Halloween time or during the pandemic. All right, Judge, we're going to circle around to this topic uh, in the future because I, I know that you're involved and it's equally important to talk about the role of the trucking industry, bro- both pro and con, in the idea of human trafficking, as well as the whole idea coming forward uh, in our lifetimes, I assume, is, and that is driverless vehicles and trucks being turned over to driverless vehicles. Uh, we have a, a lot to talk about. Absolutely. And these innovations, especially as it relates to artificial intelligence, driverless trucks, are 
they are speeding toward us at literally at the speed of light. There are some communities and some states that are already seeing it. And without a doubt, you're going to be seeing it in your traffic court soon enough. And it's going to raise all kinds of questions as it relates to the issue of human trafficking. Um, human trafficking is so very prevalent in the trucking industry. And there have been considerable steps taken at the federal level, even to and including creating partnerships with other organizations to address um, the issue of human trafficking um, because it is it's so heartbreaking. But it's also something that together um, the federal government other collaborative agencies have really um, been focused on addressing and trying to ensure we can put the brakes on human trafficking. Well, Judge, uh, I hope you can help us bring in some e experts on this and join us in, in talking with them about these topics in the near future, because uh, these are important. When people talk about CDL licenses and, and traffic court, they may go ho-hum, <laughs> but uh, these are issues that are really at the heart of of our culture and our lives. You're so very right. And I am excited to um, bring some experts that will be able to talk to us very candidly about some of the things that uh, we definitely see, experience, and we know are coming in this industry. And quite frankly, Tom, it affects our daily lives. We, you know, we don't live in silos. We, we live in neighborhoods, communities, and we travel roads and highways where this definitely has a direct, I like to call it face forward impact and knowledge is power. And we are empowering your listeners, whether they are CDO holders, judges, or regular drivers like myself to have all of the information they need to keep themselves and their families safe. As always, Judge Gale, Thank you for your time and your expertise. I appreciate you. Thank you very much. This is a fun conversation. I look forward to continuing it. Today, Judge Gail Williams Byers warns us that special treatment of commercial drivers by our courts leads to unsafe highways. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate or review our podcast through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you.